0: Hey everybody, this is Brent Watkinson with Everyday Artist. Vanessa Lemon joins us today with a discussion about her personal work and her personal struggles with dealing with several issues of being an artist, an educator, and even a female in today's society. Vanessa and her husband Ron owned a brick-and-mortar studio classroom that taught people from all around the world and across the country for about 15 years and they finally have converted that into being completely online. You can see links to Vanessa's website and the current studio which is named Lemonade because of her last name. The last name is spelled L-E-M-E-N and Aid is spelled A-I-D, as in help or helping, or to give aid to someone. In this case, it is aid in the form of teaching, drawing, and painting skills. Lemonade.com is the web address, and of course that's L-E-M-E-N-A-I-D.com. And you can find links to everything on my website, as always, brentwatkinson.com and please click the subscribe link wherever you listen to this podcast and of course it's free. Vanessa has shown work in galleries and exhibitions all across the nation and is privately collected internationally. She regularly contributes to Everyday Original and IX Gallery. That may be called Nine Gallery but I call it IX. Her work has also been published in such art books as Spectrum, Women of Wonder, The Journal, and Infected by Art, and has been featured in articles in magazines such as American Art Collector, Painter, Imagine FX, Poets and Artists, and San Diego Home and Garden Lifestyles magazine. Vanessa also writes monthly columns for the Muddy Colors blog, and has been interviewed by one fantastic week webcast recently she has had eight images published in the limited edition book the left hand of darkness by ursula k Le Guin. and we talk about those images in our amicable conversation the list could continue about vanessa and her awards and accomplishments but let's listen to what she has to say about a wide scope of subjects. I give you my friend, Vanessa Lemon. Let's get into it. Vanessa, tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now what's what's the hot current thing that you're working on
1: right now i am finishing up a painting that will be in imagine effects workshop so it's like a how-to step-by-step of of a painting you know tremendously last minute finishing it up
0: (laughs) (laughs) is that uh, typical for you
1: the finishing up last minute yes but it i have Several things going at once. So, um, several paintings, think,
0: several projects. What do you mean, several things?
1: Yeah, several paintings, several projects, both, uh, several things, like other things too, like all, all of us do, real life things, as well as work related things. I mean, all of it goes together. That's, but um, several paintings always, because that's just how I work best. And I think having deadlines makes me finish them. (laughs) That's why sometimes maybe it it gets there to the last minute. In this case, for this one, it's last minute because I have some things going on uh, otherwise outside of my social media curated presence that um, have put me behind on a lot of things. So that's my reason for last minute this time. (laughs)
0: I like what you said about um, deadlines because I'm the person that would get done early all the time and then I know a lot of people that need that pressure of the deadline. Like, oh my gosh, this is due tomorrow. i got to do it, got to do it. See, oh, I, would yeah. be, I would be done 24 hours ahead of time and otherwise it would drive me nuts. But So you're saying you're one of these people that really craves that deadline because that makes you work, pushes you. It
1: does. Uh, but I can say that I've learned and I might not be as on it with, as you are as far as like being done ahead of time like that. But I've learned to actually create like false deadlines for myself.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: So, um, And that might have come actually from creating false deadlines for Ron <laughs> <And then laughs> when we had our business together in the studio. Okay,
0: wait a minute. Who's Ron? What?
1: <laughs> Ron. Everyone knows who Ron is. Come on.
0: Ron Lemon, the machine Ron gun Lemon. of information.
1: <clears throat> yeah. yeah, it's true. Yep. I, I I equate him. Machine gun of information is good. I like that one. I kind of equate him more to like the Tasmanian devil myself, but.
0: <laughs> I'll go with that. <laughs> I love you, Ron.
1: He knows this. I'm not. I'm not he knows I already Think that of him,
0: <laughs> you know. It, he's
1: mellow. I mean, but it's just there's just he's got all of the things, you know, going at once, and he's able to kind of intake, process, output all, all at the same time. Just it's fascinating and it's uh inspiring for sure.
0: Well, he's anyway, the guy, wrong. <laughs> he anyway. That's Ron. Yeah, yeah. He's the guy that knows every node of muscle on the tricep. He knows the, you know, if the deltoid goes over or under which head of the tricep, he knows which muscle groups do this. He can completely compose any figure in any point of view, in any pose, and he knows everything behind it. Oh, I, I appreciate that. Everybody has their own approach and their own things that they like to think about. I jumped ahead of myself a little bit. I wanted to ask you about, you <laughs> recently had eight paintings published in The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula. How do you say the last name? Leguin?
1: I've just always said Le Guin.
0: Okay, Le Guin. That's, that works for me. Uh, <laughs> tell us how that project came about. And was it, were they narrative? Were they intuitive?
1: Oh, my gosh. Um...
0: Why was that such a big question?
1: The, well, how the project came about? You mean how initially I was contacted? Or, right, or right. Just,
0: how, how did they find you and what were the roles of those images? What, what function did they play?
1: Okay, how they found me is quite different from the second part of that question. So I'll, I'll say this first, and it's really important. I really, really want to make a point to say this because I think people forget um, how important this might be. So number one, I asked, how did they find me? Because I was curious. I'm not uh, really technically out there as an illustrator, although I don't know even what I'd call myself, (laughs) illustrator, fine artist. I'm kind of in between. I, I walk that fine line in between that thankfully is not becoming a line in between anymore. I did ask because I was curious, not that, not so much why me, because when I got asked to do this, I knew exactly why they were asking me. And that is not meant to sound cocky at all. That was just like, oh my God, I'm so, I feel like I'm so perfect for this, or at least I could, I could really get into this, you know, and I'm always hoping that the art director who contacted me felt the same way, obviously that, that's why I assume they contacted me, but how he did tell me that he found me was through the annuals. And it's really important that I wanted to say that because um, I think sometimes artists aren't really even sure whether or not that does any good for them, but.
0: And I are you right talking there. specifically about spectrum in, in this case?
1: I think it was spectrum. It, and I think, I might be unclear, but I'm in, I've am in. i been in spectrum and um, infected by art. You know, this art director was so amazing. I'm going to name drop because I just thought he was just the best guy ever to be working with. His name is Michael Hendricks, and it's for Easton Press. He was so neat that he wrote me one time just out of the blue, kind of during the course of the project. And he said, yeah, hey, I was just uh, reminded... I saw your image uh, holding on and letting go of one of my paintings. That's the title. Yeah. Either spectrum or infected by art because it's in, it's been in both, but he said I was flipping through and uh, it just reminded me the reason why I asked you to do this project. I think you're <clears throat> the perfect person for it. <laughs> and then that's all. Have a nice day. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>
0: wow. So your message is get out there and invest the entrance fees into these annuals because people actually do look at them and look for them and recruit people to do work.
1: Yeah, they do. I mean, he does. He told me. So, and well, I, like I said, I was curious.
0: Well, that's good information from him. And it's good information from you to everybody that might be out there listening, saying, ah, I don't know. I don't know if I <laughs> want to invest in this or not.
1: Yes. That's why I wanted to mention it. So as far as the images go, I mean, really after being contacted, um, I was backtracking a second again, but after being contacted, I had to tell him no, uh, which was, God, I almost wanted to cry.
0: <laughs> well, what happened? But,
1: um, I couldn't do it at all. There was It was not physically possible at all to do it. I
0: Because of I the tight deadline or something?
1: Yeah, I had three big things going at that time. And then we talked about different deadlines, about pushing it back. We went back and forth a few times. And then he finally was like, well, you know, actually, let's just say it this way. We want you to do it. So when can you do it? You know? Um, Wow. That's
0: a huge compliment. It was. Yeah.
1: And I think that's why I wanted to ask, you know, how did, how did you know to contact me um, about it? It was kind of neat. Um, Like I said, I'm not out there as an illustrator, so. the images themselves, it was a really interesting time because there's a few things going on, like I said, kind of in my own life, which is always going to be the case with all of us and what we do, especially as independent artists that are doing different projects and different illustrations for different pieces. I mean, different maybe um, concepts altogether, you know, different kind of genres of work. And for me, it's like fine art and illustration they both cross over. Um, and I do know several people now, a lot of the people that I show in group shows and fine art world are also doing illustration and their work is the same in both. Um, and that's what I feel like I was saying earlier, why that crossover or that kind of melding together has been so great. Because I don't know um, if many of the artists that I show in group shows with even know, because I feel like some of them are about probably half my age, but that didn't always exist.
0: (laughs) Oh, no, not at all. Uh, Those two things (laughs) were diametrically opposed for years in both industries.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Which nobody in the art world or the illustration world understood because to us it was all picture making and Mm -hmm. we didn't know why there was this great divide between the two. And maybe you're saying that that's fading away a little bit now.
1: I think it is. Yeah, the lines are blurred for sure. And I think it's great. Um, I've never understood why, you know, people who were in fine art say my kind of upbringing in art is pretty eclectic, but part of it, a big part of it is like that whole atelier kind of um, system. And in that world, you know, lots of artists that were doing that fine art kind of work did not want to be viewed as an illustrator even if they were doing illustration and you know that was maybe even more their income than what they were doing with fine art they had a different name you know they just didn't go by the same name for either one but now like I said the lines are blurred and it's okay to be the same artist doing it but you know that I can say a lot not only for the artists themselves but for the The rest of the world, uh, especially, say, galleries that will host artists who do illustration. And that might have started with the whole lowbrow thing. What used to be termed lowbrow, I don't even think that exists anymore either. But those types of artists that were in that lowbrow scene still gave themselves that opportunity by staying kind of true to what they were doing by making images that crossed over into both. Because in that whole atelier system, and then being an instructor in that, there's a kind of a, a pressure to prove that you are worthy of instructing others. <laughs> so, not only in the information that you can give, which someone's going to find out after they sign up for the class, but the usually networking takes care of that, you know, someone took class and says, oh, I've really learned a lot from this person. And so someone else will say, want to take the class, that kind of thing, but in your imagery you're making. So if I'm in a teaching at an atelier, then I need to look like that. My work needs to look like that. I, I was sticking to that for a long time. And it's a an early or young or immature, naive way of thinking of things. It really is now, in hindsight, I can say that.
0: (laughs) So let's clarify that a little bit. You said your work needed to look like you were worthy of teaching. Did did I, did I understand that correctly?
1: I know, um, how, (laughs) yeah. Okay. So yes, but the way the mindset around that the way the whole way of thinking that is the is the immature way of thinking it was an immature part of it not necessarily the image itself but that you have to show that yes i can paint something that looks like a photograph or you know i'm saying that in quotes you can't see me but i'm holding up quotes in my fingers (laughs) (laughs) looks like a photograph um, but oh my god, that looks like a photograph and that means to them that you painted something that looks real, which I actually think are two are very separate different things. I'm looking like a photograph and the word real. Gosh, I don't even I should know how to say this better without I don't want to make it sound mean towards anyone who might be at this part of their learning curve. <laughs> It's important to understand, say, anatomy, if, if you're a figurative painter, uh, for sure. And so you you need to go through that. And it's a lifetime thing. It's not like it stops now and now you can paint. It's just you keep learning as you go. Uh, there's a point in your mindset that you feel like you have to put everything in the kitchen sink in there. <laughs> and then you realize that when you're doing what you do and you know what you know, and you paint, and you let it come out, it's going to show. There isn't a need to hit over everyone over the head with <laughs> all the things.
0: Well, it's a little bit about learning the rules, so you know the rules, and in our case, this is how to draw, how light hits a form how to render something so that it looks like it's wrapping around and to use Picasso as an example he could photographically draw or hyper realistically draw the figure or anything he wanted early in his career and that was an important step because he took that information he understood things and then he began to figure out his personal point of view and some people would say regress from that aggressive, realistic point of view and try to simplify things. But he still had that information. It's like musicians that study composition have to learn the rules and then they study and figure out how Beethoven knew the rules, yet he broke them. Gary Kelly, I think, is a great example of knowing the rules of picture making And then he throws them away and invents his own little, I always call it the magic window. He makes these great illustrations that look like you're looking into this alternate reality that's his. He makes the rules, but they're so believable that I just go along with it. And I think Mm -hmm. maybe that's what you're saying about learning realistic techniques first and then what do you do with it to make it more personal? Is that a summation of what we were trying to get to?
1: Yeah, though also your person that you pointed out, the artist that you pointed out that's doing so, it's so different from me in terms of our, you know, end result, but we are both doing that. There's also an illustration background. I feel like all the time that I was teaching you know in our studio this kind of classical foundation drawing and painting there was also illustration techniques so principles and elements of design for example so you're you're talking about all of those things at once and i think that's again why you know the eclectic background i had before that and then teaching sort of these melding of the two is how i am who i am and why my images are now what they are and also why we're seeing artists out there that are crossing over as well, because everybody's picking up things from different places and making it their own. That's why it can cross over. That's why it all is becoming, you know, one thing now, which I love.
0: You mentioned an eclectic background. What does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) How eclectic (laughs) was it?
1: I think I say that because Again, I don't think I'm different than a lot of people in that way in whatever, you know, path they've chosen to take. Mine is art, but, you know, not only have I learned from, you know, the education I've gotten, which is eclectic, yes, and I will go there in a second, but uh, also in my own life experiences uh, and job experiences. So most being, most of my jobs being art related, but definitely not what my personal work looks like at all. So I learned on the job the entire time I was learning also in school teaching for sure. I learned a lot too. So, but background. Why is, do you
0: think teaching helps you further your craft? What do you mean by that?
1: Because there are things with teaching that you learn to find ways of saying things, to be articulate, to be succinct with your information and when you're being succinct is still not understood knowing another way or another way or another way to say that same thing that there are many ways of doing a lot of things to understand that each person that comes into your class comes from a different place with different experiences and a different amount of knowledge, experience, story to tell, uh, interests, all of that, and to try to take in all of that and help each person individually with that to become, you know, hopefully the best they can become with what you can help them with or what they have and what they will go further with.
0: I like what you said there because we all understand that different people learn differently, and I think that really didn't come into the forefront of education until maybe 50 years ago, maybe. Usually, it's just like, here's here's the class, here's the assignment, we've been doing it this way for a long time, everybody better get it, but my, <laughs> my or else, my example is, some students need to hear 25 plus 2 equals 27. Some students need to hear 30 minus 3 equals 27. And there's always that one student that needs to hear 3 cubed equals 27. (laughs) It's all 27. But there are a lot of words, I think, that can really augment visual learning. As a matter of fact, one of my second, I think it was my second podcast that I ever did I talked about the timing of watercolor paintings. And I'm sure a lot of people thought I was crazy doing an audio podcast about a visual watercolor painting process. But the information I thought was sound, no pun intended, because it's just these things that my instructors told me that I wouldn't know unless they told me. I could watch them all day long. And then they would say this sentence and I'm like, holy smokes. I'm glad I heard that. And I'm sure you experience that all the time in your teaching. Yeah.
1: The other thing that I experience teaching, so there is that. And, you know, also coming from being um, someone who's gone through classes and and learning myself, obviously, (laughs) I've been in that situation of like, oh, here I am in this, you know, workshop with this artist and they're amazing. And I want to do the thing they're doing. But I've always been able to take that thing and and sort of try to do it and then know that that's not, you know, I'm not going to go out and now do the thing they do. I'm going to take that and put it in the, all the files in my brain <laughs> and, and then tap into it whenever that may come out in when I'm making my own paintings. Is experiencing that as an instructor, seeing that students will do something with the hopes that you're impressed as the instructor is what I want them to get away from. <laughs> so um, that's great. Uh, and thank you for trying to please me, <laughs> but uh, it's not necessary. Maybe in a different kind of system it is because there's grading or whatever, but in the kind of a system that we have at our, you know, studio classes, it's not necessary in the same way at least it is obviously you, you hope that you get this information across to your students and that they are getting it. and by understanding it and then they're showing you know by making an image they're showing they understand it that's different than like just trying to please you and doing things like for example the types of marks I make in my paintings and then seeing students go off and just do that same thing in all of their paintings it's like no that's That's not not what it was about. You have to understand what those marks are. And to you, it's different than to me. I showed you how to use the tools, but what you're going to do with them is going to be different. I hope, you know, because now you're doing something as a second generation, you know, thought of someone else, which isn't necessarily your own thing.
0: In reference to teaching and learning, having students and instructors... What do you think is the biggest mistake that students do while trying to learn? And these can be students of any age.
1: There's probably a lot of things. As far as the biggest mistake, uh, one time there was a student that asked me, well, they told me that they heard from a different instructor, that, that that instructor said they knew when a student either has it or not. As far as like the potential to be a good artist, and that student was frustrated with the instructor saying that, and I could understand why because um, depending on where you're coming from with the way that you perceive that answer, and in some ways it's sort of like a competition. Like then we're just shot, you know, if we, if we don't have a shot at it, if um then if it's already predetermined in that way that that instructor, that that student mistook what the instructor was saying but I also feel like that instructor just saying that without explaining a little bit is misleading as well so.
0: That's a really rough thing to stay to say to a student <clears throat> and even if the instructor was thinking that and I've had <clears throat> students that I thought oh man I don't know if they're really going to make it I would never tell them that I would say yeah. okay here are things that maybe you're not thinking about, or you're not approaching this correctly, you know, compared to the things that we've talked about in class. So how would you handle that situation? What would you say?
1: That's the first thing I asked. I asked that student, did they explain? And they basically said no. And that I think is the fault right there of the instructor. I think that they needed to explain. But also the fault of the student is to not ask what they mean. So there's the biggest mistake most times is to not say, what do you mean? Or I didn't understand. Or could you explain that another way? So Um, if a
0: student has any questions or confusion about something that an instructor says, it's what I call, it's the active student's, responsibility to get clarification, because we all know that there are active students and passive Mm -hmm. students.
1: Right, so that is actually what that instructor, I think that's what that instructor meant.
0: So let's talk a little bit about your observations of what are some habits and some attitudes of good students. And I'm not talking about people that draw and paint well, I'm talking about people that come into a learning situation And they are good students as far as learning. What makes a good student?
1: Resourcefulness, asking questions, respect, respect for other students, respect for the instructor, respect for themselves, humility, knowing that you're going to make mistakes and you're going to learn from them and that they're not necessarily mistakes. They're just ways of finding out how to do something (laughs) based on... uh, some kind of thing that you felt like at at the time might have gone wrong, but it's just um, creates a a new aspect for you to take in and um, figure out how to work with.
0: Oh, I, I think those are all accurate and the mental game of a student. And that's a lot of what you were talking about as far as being open and resourceful, asking questions, being a sponge as many people on this podcast have said before, and in my lectures to students when we're talking about particular things, I will show an image of bodybuilders, and I will say, sure, they go to the gym. What's their mental game? Do they mm-hmm. do they go to the gym 20 minutes a day on Monday and Wednesday to look like this, to win this competition? Of course they don't. They're not <laughs> only, yeah, they're not only physically doing the work, And the reason I bring this up is because I had a friend of mine that I went to college with that was a um, female, and at the age of 42, she decided she was going to be a bodybuilder. And she was never even really an athlete in school or anything. She just thought, bodybuilding, that sounds fun. Okay. So at the age of 42, she started training, and she won the state championship in her age division three years in a row. And I was talking to her about it, and, and, uh, and I said, well... Uh, Boy, I bet you're really nervous the day of the competition and she said no No one is really nervous on the day of competition because if the competition starts at 10 o'clock on Saturday It's over at 10 o'clock on Saturday because all of the people That do the mental game the mental work for the year or six months or eight months leading up to that They always win the people that do the diet get the sleep drink the water Uh, you know, do this, do that. She said, I've never slept so much in my life as when (laughs) I was bodybuilding because that's so important. And she says, the people that do the mental game, the best always win because part of the mental game is going to the gym and working your muscles to failure and et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's the same thing with students trying to learn anything. So I, I know this is a very strange analogy, but do you think that's accurate with art students playing the mental game well?
1: I definitely do. Oh man, there's a lot of ways to answer this. I mean, you mentioned sleep and uh, right there is one of those things that I think people take for granted (laughs) Um, and don't think that that's an important part of the whole, the whole process. You know, when you're thinking about being an artist as you know, your career endeavor you don't think like sleep will be on the list of things I need to do as an artist. (laughs) Like,
0: Yeah. For some reason, artists don't really covet sleep except they like to complain about not getting sleep. I think that's the badge that they wear.
1: Yeah. But I think that's the thing is that it shows when you're not on your game. So including all of the above sleep being one of the things that, um, that it does show. It shows with me in in ways that I'm aware of and maybe others aren't, maybe they are. And that's the thing. I think probably it is, you know, clear for me, it ends up being an over rendering of paint, you know, like if I'm working on a painting and um, I have this loose free start, and then, um, then I get into it over render. I probably hadn't been getting enough sleep. I probably, you know, wasn't in the right state of being to be working on that at that time.
0: So do you just sometimes fall back? Let's say you're sleep deprived or whatever, or just not in the zone that day. Do you just fall back on your dog and pony tricks that you know, that you think you can pull this out instead of actually physically being in the moment and, and paying attention?
1: Well, that's an interesting thought. So it depends If there's a deadline and I need to get something done, I have to power through it. So I may have to, you know, maybe taking a nap is a good idea, but I may have to step back, think about it for a second, you know, just breathe, (laughs) meditate for a little bit, maybe. That's true. I mean, just taking a step back and taking a few breaths and just concentrating on that for a minute clears everything up and gets you on track again you yeah, know, if I feel agitated or frustrated at all, I'm not in the right state of being to be working on my painting. Sometimes really great paintings come out of that mood that, you know, I've, I've made some paintings where I was just mad and I sat down and started painting and it's like, yes, <laughs> that is what I needed to do right now. But so you, did see, you find your for me when I overwork things is when I'm not, you know, maybe it's a better, if I'm not on a deadline, maybe it's a better time to work on other things like clean up an image digitally that I'm going to be submitting to, you know, sending an image to a gallery before the show, that kind of thing, like work type things that you have to get done.
0: Let's talk about the way you work a little bit. And as most people know, I, I really don't talk a, a lot about technique or what kind of pencil do you use (laughs) because that's not really interesting or relevant but your actual process of painting I think really is interesting and relevant especially for this conversation and I would uh, I've seen you work many many times and I would say you start with an abstraction an informed abstraction and then you are so good at perceiving and recognizing an emerging image in there somewhere. So how did that come about? Did you discover it? Did somebody show it to you? Was it an accident? Did you refine it over years? How did that come about?
1: How it came about is I would answer yes to all of those questions you just asked and that's how it came about. So it's from... All the things I've learned, all the th- mistakes I've made, all the tools I've tried. And and, and speaking
0: of that, I've seen you use kitchen <laughs> tools. You use weird things. <laughs> <laughs> I do. But I like it.
1: I don't think those are weird, but yeah. Because I mean, art tool companies or whatever, art, art supplies are, are made now mimicking those kitchen utensils. So
0: Well, you're a wonderful mark maker and you're constantly trying to find the next thing to make marks. I really love that idea.
1: Yeah, I do. Yeah. And the trying, you know, to find the next thing is not only about the tools, but it's a, it's a challenge in exploration, you know, the exploration of chance that the chance of something new may come from exploring something unfamiliar. And then from doing that, then the new comes, then I've got this new thing to roll with that I I don't know that I would have known to do unless I tried new things, tried new tools, new materials, new
0: surfaces. Have you ever stumbled across something that you quote unquote did accidentally and then think, oh, how did I do that? I need to do that again. Where did I get that? <laughs>
1: Yes, all the time. and I know that I can do it again to an extent, although I can never do the exact thing the same anymore. And you know, again. So if someone, which I wouldn't do anyway, but if someone said, "I love this painting that you painted, um, can you paint another one for me?" which I think I would never do. but um, no, no, I can't. And it's not that I couldn't I personally would not feel the same about doing it anyway. So I wouldn't. But I'm they're not the marks aren't gonna come out looking the same. I could because and this comes from the eclectic background I have, working in several different types of illustration type jobs, like working in a greedy card company that I had to mimic the hand of the artist we were working for and with all of the art had to look like her hand did it. So there is that capability. I could make it look like it, but it wouldn't have come about the same way again, because the the coming about of it was experimental and a form of exploration. It just wouldn't be the same anymore for me.
0: Well, I think that's a good answer. And I think when I look at your work, there's a little bit of truly this abstract expressionism from the 40s and 50s because when I look at your paintings I think wow I wonder number one how did she do that and number two they all look like your work but they're different and, and I think it is this random chance things that happen a lot and I look at your work and I think wow that was an experience she was having with this individual painting. And then when she did the next one, that was an individual experience on that painting. Am I close to the mark there? Is that true? Oh, it's
1: yes, it is. and it, it, it is an experience. If I talk only about myself and the making of the piece, it's all about the experience. But then as an artist, we know that we put work out, for others to experience it as well i mean unless you're just doing art that you want to sit around in your studio and never show it to anyone that's fine too if if you have that notion to do that it just makes you feel good and it's therapeutic and then you know it is what it is and move on but most of the artists i know are doing it as a way to put it out there in some way or another so whether they do art shows or they're illustrators doing doing it for uh, jobs but you're hoping for someone else to engage in it and have an experience as well. And so I've found that my work combines all of those experiences I've had in my past, as well as the experience I'm having in the moment, and comes out as an image. And then they, it is experienced by others. And I know that it is the same for everyone. And I guess going back to the beginning when we were talking about the mature versus immature way of looking at it. And when I say immature, I mean it truly as the definition of the word, not as a, a negative or derogatory comment. I just mean, you know, naive, <laughs> like truly naive as well. I went through the whole Atelier thing, so I know how to draw and paint a figure to look like the figure looks. I mess around with materials in all different ways, and I still like, I still will study from life, and do study from life to to gain a better understanding of uh, working with the figure too, and all different angles and that kind of thing, and then trying the materials and making marks, and then finding things in them. How we find things in clouds like dragons and bunnies or whatever you see in clouds. This is kind of the way the images come about for me, but I wouldn't be able to paint the figure into the marks and have them look the way they do. If I didn't have both or all of the experiences that I've had in the past. So going back again, the information
0: that you have, the information about drawing the information about application
1: hmm. So when students are doing something, when I was mentioning before, and they're making marks like I do, and then they put a figure in there, and they don't have a lot of experience drawing the figure, um, it shows less experienced um, artists way of thinking, they're thinking they're doing that same thing as I'm doing, because they learn a thing, and it's new, and it feels good, and it feels successful. And that's great, but they still need to learn more and keep learning more so that the work feels sound and solid overall. Everyone can look at something. I mean, you know, all all people are different and are going to find different things in the work and what inspires them or what they're drawn to. And that's awesome. (laughs) I love that about art. All people can look at something and know when it's falling apart, (laughs) you know, or feel like it's not quite there. I really
0: (laughs) agree with that. I, I think People just have this, I, I think we're hardwired in the human brain. We have a little everybody has a little bit of a sense of a good composition or a good picture. And a lot of people can't explain it or are not they're not verbally able to assess that or communicate it. But I think there's something you're really onto something here because they just have this sense.
1: As far as the abstract marks I make, when I was talking about rendering too much and that being something where I need to step back and, you know, kind of assess the situation and to feel like that's where I'm kind of losing the image, um, it's going in a direction I didn't want it to go in, that is more about kind of telling the viewer what to see. So when I realize that I'm hitting them over the head, you know, with like this is this and when you look at this, it's this. Instead, I want that a lot of those marks to be open and not so much decoration as expansive, never ending. And actually they might change over time when the viewer changes. So someone who is drawn to a piece maybe and buys that piece from me, and they have it in their home, and then they have it for years, and then they over years to look at it, maybe that image will even change for them, or at least it has the potential to change. And when I was younger, I didn't necessarily see that as much.
0: I would ask you maybe to summarize a little bit about a lot of these thoughts that we just talked about.
1: Mainly it would be to keep in mind that your work, you know, when I talk about myself as a young artist compared to a a more seasoned artist (laughs) and I still have a lot to learn you know for sure but when I I think it's good to look back I think it's good to take a look at the artwork that you were doing years ago and and the artwork you're doing now and compare and contrast things you know if you have I mean, if you have some sort of mission statement, it's really good to know. I know maybe not everyone thinks about a mission statement ever because we did as having a different kind of business. You have to have one. And I think artists should think about that. Not an artist statement. It's very different. Artist statements are like elaborate descriptions, mission statements, like saying it in a few words, what you're all about. If you're always holding true to that, that's what you look for when you look back. And you look at your new work. Did you lose sight of it or are you still on track? Or have you evolved and maybe there's a new thing that's more important now? But I think most most people will see that they're the same person. And then as far as the work goes, what became more important to me is to leave a lot more to exploration of other people. You know, the chance to see something different in it and that it may change too over time. Um, If I look back at my old work compared to my new work, I can see that I was doing something that wasn't for myself at all. It was, maybe it was because it was like a learning materials or, you know, I needed to still do that. I still needed to learn how to look, to observe and and then to paint when I was observing, that kind of thing. But now there's also, and always was, but was, I put it on the back burner It was about exploring kind of that unknown and trying to encapsulate in an image what's intangible and leave that intangible to be open to different interpretations. So hopefully that was a good summary.
0: (laughs) Oh, I think so. And maybe that will lead us to one of our previous topics of conversation that we just barely touched on, but let's go back and, Tell me a little bit more about the images for The Left Hand of Darkness, which was a book that you illustrated in uh, 2018.
1: Yes. So The Left Hand of Darkness was an award-winning novel written, actually, the first time it was published was in 1968 or 69. And finally, when we nailed down a little bit more of the deadline um, and the amount of time that I to be allowed to work on it it was getting to you know diving into the book again figuring out what areas to illustrate which you know there's a ton i, I had to narrow it down to only eight <clears throat> those eight needed to be dispersed throughout the book in a way that you know so there weren't like three all together <laughs> near each other it had to be kind of equally dispersed throughout the book so there were some that i had to say no to um in order for it to make most more sense just overall
0: so the decision of which parts of the book were illustr that were to be illustrated were a collaborative event between you and the editor
1: I'm um, collaborative only in the way that he said you know throw my way and let me see if that works and then when I did he said that's great <laughs> Um, but I had well, yes,
0: You say over
1: what I wanted to illustrate, too, which is fun and great.
0: Right. Well, you were talking about pacing the illustrations at the right moments in the book, I guess, more than who was in charge of the artwork. I guess I was speaking about who was in charge about saying we need to illustrate this part and this part and this part. And you were saying that was kind of a back and forth give and take.
1: No, it was it was me. Um, I just knew that I had to make sure that they were they were spaced well throughout the book but otherwise you know and if I didn't do a good job at that he would have said maybe these are too close together find something else that works but I had other options I had I had a lot of options so I had I had to narrow it down to eight that made the most sense as far as space goes and when you know two of them I had a hard time deciding on but I felt like I chose one over the other in that case, and this is the only real one that I felt like I had a hard time with, uh, was that it made more sense for the story that I was illustrating. It wasn't about me. It was and what I thought, oh my gosh, I could really make an amazing image out of that. It was about adhering to the impact of the novel itself and adhering to the story and adhering to what what would be the most important thing to illustrate over just what I felt like would be cool. <laughs> That's one thing about this job that for sure kept confronting me. So in a lot of ways, the way I work, I see the the stories, and this is another reason for keeping that abstract in there is that it's allowing me to see things um, of my of myself in it without it being such a literal mirror, but it is a mirror when I was working on this, I saw that I've been far away from illustrating for a while. I've been doing personal work and that's lucky for me, Um, been what is my work as well. When I was doing this, it wasn't about me to an extent. It was about Ursula and her story and my images were to back it in the best way. And that being away from being an illustrator those things came back to me, like in that reflection, making me aware that to stay true to her vision. So one of the things about her vision is that remaining ambiguous thing. And believe it or not, even though you can look at my work and feel like yeah, it's pretty ambiguous, <laughs> it still wasn't because it is in my own way, but it's not in her way. Like for example, the characters. People have a tendency to say that my characters are female. I've always felt like they're pretty androgynous. But when I did this project, I realized that my my characters are look very female. And the characters in the book are known as being androgynous or ambiguous. But tendencies on more male kind of fig, uh, features than female. So that was important to not lose sight of that part of it. But to keep it ambiguous also because the story has been interpreted so many ways from gender issues to cultural diversity to the color of one's skin to social and political issues (laughs) so much that I didn't want to only tap into one of those but to leave it to still be interpreted however that person's going to interpret it. And I felt like that was a really big challenge and it was so good for me. Although it was not easy. Um, Well,
0: what was um, going on socially at the time when you were working on these?
1: Yeah. So out in the real world, the
0: big, bad real world.
1: Oh my goodness. Well, so many things. Political climate has not been good for quite some time. but it's pretty intense right now. And some there's, there are specific characters in here in this book that, I mean, some of the phrases that she used, you know, and people say this a lot about sci-fi writers in general, that um, they sort of predict the future, but most sci-fi writers will say, I'm not predicting the future. I'm talking about now. (laughs) And now just happens to happen again and again. And so when, It's read decades later. um, It still holds up or holds up even more, you know, than it did then. And so political was for sure. There were some characters in there that I just went, wow, that is exactly what's happening right now. There was the Me Too movement, which is really heavy because Me Too was really, really heavy in itself the left hand of darkness is really heavy in itself. (laughs) And so the combined, you know, those things happening at the same time just was, it was good for me. Uh, It was challenging. It knocked me down in order for me to, it, it gave me purpose. It gave me a stronger will to, move forward. And you can only know this in hindsight. It gave me that will. I don't know that where that came from because I did feel down when I was doing it.
0: It gave you the will to do what?
1: To finish (laughs) because it's important to finish. This is a job. So it goes to two things. One, just a job. You got to get it done. Suck it up. (laughs) did and two, you have
0: trouble divorcing yourself from the mental feelings that you were having about the social ramifications that were going on in the real world and yeah. working on this book at the same time so that was so you had yeah. a, you had trouble stepping away from it
1: i have trouble with that all the time in my own work so you know my work is personal work a lot of what people see there's things like everyday originals that aren't necessarily quote unquote personal because they're abstract a combination of abstract and realism. A lot of times a face or a figure and they're a chance for me to have fun and play and that kind of thing. But personal work that I'm talking about, and that is personal work, but more of the issues talking about social issues, gender issues, equality issues, human issues, humanity. Those are things that are always in my work, always in my mind. And having these two intense things at once, three, I guess, if you include four or five, whatever, all the things going on. I mean, this there's like turmoil that a lot of, at least our society right now is in, but we're seeing it in a lot of places. Environmental issues too. That was another one I didn't mention in that list before. It knocked me down in a way because there's no not looking at it. You can't, turn away from it because this is a job you have to get done. So you have to say, like Ursula was saying when she wrote it, you have to talk about it. And that's what Me Too was about. It was about talking about it. But what I realized from that coming out is that not everyone wants to talk about it. And that's not a bad thing. Not everyone is meant to speak up and be loud and heard. Not everyone is, that we all are made differently. And in the case of doing these illustrations for someone else's book, someone else's story, I was able to say, okay, well, good. This This is another person's voice that I get to give my interpretation of and let it be ambiguous. So how can I do that? pick myself up <laughs> what, what? how am I how am I going to make these images work and not you know drive myself crazy and not get too involved but another thing about how I work is that I, I mean I could say I've said this before and it sounds kind of silly maybe but sometimes the, be- or the best way to, to explain how I work is sort of thinking about it like an actor who is considered a method actor so when they are method acting they play the part in their regular lives as well, you know, so they, you know, lose all the weight or gain all the weight and they make themselves look and feel like that character. They are that character while they're playing that part throughout the duration of the filming process. They live their lives as that character as well. That would be the best way that I could explain how I paint my images, only it's not acting because it is me so it was very heavy because of that and sadly you know I could probably I could say that probably every I mean Me Too movement was mostly a female thing and that it could be anybody but every female for sure has had some kind of Me Too story unfortunately and that does need to change it's important for us to understand that it's good that people are speaking up it's not necessary for everyone to have to do that if you don't feel comfortable doing it. And I, I learned so much from doing Left Hand of Darkness about that, <laughs> which is really strange to say, but um, it would just happen to be happening at the same time. I write every day and I wrote so much during the time of doing that um, Left Hand of Darkness. I have notes like crazy about the things that were happening in life at the same time as I was working on those. And I was right to Ursula herself, although she never got them, you know, just asking her questions about these things.
0: Do you think a lot of those thoughts and writings that you made actually made their way into your images as well?
1: Oh yeah. I have no doubt because I, I see that a lot in in my writing. If I look back at, things I write, I could say, oh wow, that's that is where that was coming from at that time. And interestingly, you say that about sometimes like looking at like, how did she do that with the marks that I make and stuff? Like I I can say that some sometimes the same thing about my own marks. You know, I look at it like, oh, that was neat. Oh, I don't remember making that mark, but <laughs> I like the way that looks, you know. Uh, sometimes I do the same thing with writing. If I look back at it, I think, wow, I wrote that. What was going on then? So it's good to to be able to look back on it, to see an unfolding of something else, a new thing of myself, um, growth, you know, evolution, whatever you want to call it, transformation. I don't know.
0: Well, and not to get too technical here, but what you're talking about, in the part of the brain it's called the RAS the reticular activating system and that's a whole other show that's a whole other decade we could do on that but you were basically meditating in a book in your mind in your thoughts and it was manifesting itself somewhere else which in this case had to be your imagery your paintings the Mm -hmm. images that you were sharing with the world and that's a very powerful tool for people to use and a lot of artists may or may not know about it or be able to do that
1: yes it is a powerful tool and i think there are artists or people you know creatives that um, may not know like you said but i think that's part of where fear comes from a big part of where fear comes from because I think there are people that have visited it and go, oh my God, I don't want to go there again. That is scary. I thrive in there and I want to go there all the time, but it does knock me down and I do, you know, it's not easy, but in coming out of it, yeah, you're just so much stronger. So you have to go through it to know you're capable of going through it in order to go again and do it again and do something new and try something different and that's why like i don't really hesitate to try something different in terms of mark making and all that um i push myself to do that as much as i can and in the cases of these images um the left hand of darkness it was to illustrate that specific part of the book, encapsulate, you know, usually several chapters leading up to that illustration, make it hers with my interpretation. And the, and the interesting thing about the story is that there are two characters, one that is that gives the other uh, a new perspective, you know, in, eventually in the end. And I feel like that is what happened when I did it is that she, she was that for me. She was like riding along up there in the abyss at that point because she had passed away at the beginning of last year, but um, I had hopes of meeting her, which that would have been really neat, but she was still that no matter what. Really, she's always going to be that. She's left that for us by making her, Her stories and leaving those for us.
0: We've talked about social issues that were happening at the time, and some you mentioned or you just alluded to the fact that uh, social issues are still in the forefront every day now, of course. So let's delve into a little bit here, as much as you would like or not, about social media and people's lives and of course we're both artists so let's talk about artists maybe in particular and it seems like and, and this is not the fault of anyone but I think social media sometimes gives a false perception of what people's lives really are. Do you have any thoughts about that? And again people aren't fabricating things they're not lying but they tend to put good things or horrific things on social media. And that's a tiny, tiny slice of actually what's going on. What are your thoughts?
1: Well, I call it curating your presence.
0: That's a very so, good term.
1: Yeah, it's on social media. I definitely curate my own presence on social media. I'm not telling everyone what I'm doing every day, every hour. <laughs> but some people do give the notion that they are doing that. Like here i am eating this lunch and that kind of stuff but uh, that's also still curated
0: yes it's all curated by the author of the social media page whether it's instagram or facebook because you choose what to put on there or not so every single thing is a choice that goes out or not
1: right and we could You know, like I said, looking back at your own work as an artist, look back at your own social media presence. I mean, you can see a lot about yourself. (laughs) And hopefully
0: an evolution one way or the other.
1: (laughs) Yeah, let's hope. (laughs) (laughs) I've tended to mostly use it as a promotional tool, you know, so I'm sharing mostly my art. My art is so much a part of me that, it is definitely a giving out of who i am as well
0: well and basically we're not saying that it's a negative thing we are just saying that social media is not reality it's like Mm -hmm. the old christmas letter that families used to send around and, (laughs) and they would talk about bobby and sally doing great in school and you know the husband got a raise and the wife is the new ceo of this big company, and everything's fine, but they never told you that the fact that uh, uh, one of their car's transmission dropped out, and that cost $4,000, and Billy all of a sudden developed, you know, the heartbreak of psoriasis, and, you know, was in the (laughs) hospital for eight months, and so it's always just a a small perception, and to really Mm -hmm. understand and know people, you really have to be part of their lives. So we're not saying anything negative about social media. We're just saying it's a little tiny piece of the real thing. And I have hundreds of friends, you have thousands of friends, but I really don't know what's going on with most of them, except I see their artwork and that they love to cook and there's nothing wrong with that.
1: Oh, I love it. Yeah, I love all of that. You know, I love when an annual just announced got accepted into it and the awards and stuff and then all like my entire feed on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter are like all just amazing art (laughs) by all my friends it's pretty cool and
0: there's great things from all around the world I have friends on Instagram that do these amazing things in Japan and I would never see that or come across that except just almost random luck or this person is connected to that person etc so there are many many wonderful things but social media is just a piece of what we do and a lot of people sometimes put too much stock in it but that's a personal decision so i'm all for social media i like it it's fun it's interesting but it's more about entertainment than anything else and as i tell students all the time Your best source of information is not Google. It's other people.
1: Yeah. Networking other people. um, But you can use social media as a tool for that. Not necessarily like you're saying Google, um, looking up stuff, but in order to inform. So I used to be, I used to hold back a lot. Mind you, I still hold back a lot (laughs) (laughs) because you know me, Brent.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad you hold back a lot. <laughs>
1: boy, boy. But, uh, Thank you for that. I used to hold it back a lot more. In, um, I guess maybe I just wasn't as good at holding back, or 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 not holding back, but more like understanding that there's a time and place, that kind of stuff. I knew that, but still, just being aware of, like I said, with, with teaching, being aware of where everyone's coming from, and. Holding back is a lot of times better because, you know, you don't know all the other variables about when you put it out, who's going to see it and all that. To not put so much pressure on yourself as well, knowing that you're going to put something out and you're going to have to answer to it.
0: Vanessa, let's have you talk just a little bit about your online studio that you do with Ron Lemon and it's called Lemonade. And your name, for those of you that haven't figured it out yet, is not spelled L-E-M-O-N like the fruit. It's L-E-M-E-N. So when you spell Lemonade.com, that's what you're looking for, if that's the right web address. Yes,
1: but it's also aid as in help or... Ah. So it's not aid as in the ending of Lemonade.
0: I forgot about that part.
1: Yeah, so Lemonade, it's... Now everyone knows if they didn't know before, it does look like the word lemonade, like, you know, lemonade stand, but it's, it's lemon L E M E N A I D.com.
0: And that's purely online. You did have a, a brick and mortar location for many years and then decided to do the online thing for a while. So what kind of, of classes are they? Are they for beginner beginners? Are they for working professionals, everybody in between?
1: Yes, all of the above. Probably the, the students we get the most are, well, it's a mentorship type of program. So right now the classes that we have are really one-on-one, and Ron's doing that on his own. I have taken a break at the moment to... Um, focus on painting because I actually have no time to even do all of the painting (laughs) that I have, which is a great problem to have. Um,
0: Yes. I'm so glad you're busy.
1: Yeah, it has been good. But yeah, it's a mentorship program that um, is all determined on the level of the student and what the needs of the student are. So um, that is like the first class basically is that. It's a going over that with the student and getting to know where they are. Usually the, the students are someone that has come to know us in a way by having gone to a workshop um, that we've taught at or that kind of thing. So then they can say, I want more of that. And you know, can we talk about the, this mentorship program?
0: So and it's really individualized.
1: Oh yeah, it's very individualized. There might be like pairing up or or grouping up small groups to teach that when there are a similar skill level or similar need or want, that's a possibility. And you know, we're still tweaking things to make bigger classroom settings. I know that Ron really enjoys the one-on-one a lot. I can tell because he comes out of it talking to me about things and Again, like I said earlier, with, with getting those questions and comments and writing back to people, I enjoy that so much. And I, that's what I mean by Ron. I, can't tell it, I can tell that he's enjoying it, too, because he is fired up and gets these new ideas from also having that experience. Just like I, I, I without a doubt, know that the student is getting that from him because it's kind of hard not to get that from Ron. <laughs>
0: That's, that's true. He, he is the consummate teacher in many, many ways.
1: Yeah. He's, he's amazing. I mean, if there's a, you know, one major um, motivation in my life that I would point out, it would be him for sure. And, and he, it's not, he doesn't, he's not a coach. Like he's not standing by me going, go, go, go. (laughs) In fact, he leaves me to do what I should be doing he knows that this is what I should be doing and to do it to leave me alone I call it you know guarding each other's solitude and we're, we're good at that for each other and it's necessary um we all need that and I love that I have that with Ron it's a it's a it's very important for us to function the best way we can to really get into our work we need solitude. (laughs) So,
0: well, and for those interested, you were recently interviewed by Swain hunt. And that was, that podcast was published on muddy colors. So they can hear about the dynamic creative duo of Ron Mm -hmm. and Vanessa lemon. And they can listen to that also. Vanessa, any last minute advice for our listeners?
1: Yes. Don't be afraid to tell your own story. In fact, make it a point to tell your own story because no one else is going to.
0: Good words. Thank you for being here today. I always look forward to having conversations with you and thank you for sharing a lot of intimate details and stories and inside information with us. Thank you, Vanessa.
1: Thanks so much, Brent.